Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Thank you for joining us once again. And I'd like to thank you all for your patience because I know you'll have waited a couple of extra days for this episode. And I'm really grateful because we usually record on a Sunday morning, but this week I quite short notice decided I didn't want to and just wanted to have as much time as possible with my girls because it was Mother's Day. So thank you, Mark. And also thank you everyone for your patience. Hmm, fair enough. He, he called me fucking lazy um, when we first were talking about this. So, you know, that's that's the yeah. abuse I have to deal with, guys. Uh, abuse or banter, you know, there's a fine <laughs> line. So, uh, no, I'm, I'm pleased that you had uh, a day with those couple of brats of yours. Um, I'm sure you had a lovely day. Um, so before we crack on, let's just take a moment to thank our most recent Patreon supporters. We have Lawrence, Kat Johnson and Laura Tyler. Thank you to each and every one of you. And of course, huge thanks to all of our existing Patreon supporters. If you would like to join these guys, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And your support over at Patreon, honestly, it makes a massive difference to us. It makes a huge difference to the show. And we have so much bonus content over there to reward you for your support. Uh, what do we have over there, Betham? Bonus episodes, book club. You get stickers and a signed thank you card when you sign up. And you get Crime Wave, which is our new Patreon-only fortnightly mini podcast competitions. There's quite a lot, isn't there? Yeah, we've just released bonus episode number 42. 42! Oh my gosh. It's almost like a season and a half extra of Sea and Red, so... Uh, so yeah, if you if you do if you're able to and you would like to support us and access some of that content, all you need to do is head over to Patreon.com/seeingredpodcast. So before we start, we've just had a message come through literally within the hour of before recording. So that's why it's not in the script mark. And it's just something that one of our listeners has highlighted for us that I thought was a really interesting point to um, kind of cover. And it refers to last week's episode during which you said that Ollie had mild autism. And this was the description that was used and this was the diagnosis that was described Ollie um, at the time of the case. But currently, that is now seen as quite old-fashioned language and autism just isn't referred to in that way. So our listener has sent us a message and basically said, as a bit of an explanation... People can present really well, but actually not be well under the surface. And sometimes you do get people who have, who are autistic and have autism, but are also combined with a learning disability. So historically, the idea of people being high functioning autistic or having mild autism, that was, that was absolutely the correct terminology then. But now they're realising the autistic society are trying to kind of challenge this because it means that people aren't getting the diagnoses that they require, getting the help that they require because they mask a lot of their symptoms. And so, yeah, it's just, it's something that obviously when we are researching cases, we quite often have to use the language that was used at the time because it's that's how it's presented and that's how the evidence is given or that's how the crimes are described because... I know we've had cases in the past, haven't we, where we think, oh God, that crime just sounds so wrong to say it in that way. But yeah, so thank you so much to our listener. I'm not going to name her in case she doesn't want to be named, but thank you for reaching out to us and sharing your experiences and also kind of giving that bit, that bit of information for us. So this week, we're going to be sharing with you a guest written episode. So huge thanks to our lovely listener, Chris, who wrote up this episode for us to use. 
He explained, the story is always something that's close to my mind, especially as it is next to the Trafford Centre, which is a shopping complex, and the area where the crime took place is currently being redeveloped. And I often wonder if anyone remembers what happened there or the victim. And I thought, God, that's so true. How many times have I passed somewhere that's the site of a tragedy without even realising it, but someone else might walk past and be reminded of something that happened? It's really interesting kind of point isn't it it's weird isn't it because you're right it could be a scene of unimaginable horror from two decades ago lots of people still remember that they it resonates with them every time they walk past it they feel it sometimes and others kind of have forgotten about it or never even knew so it always reminds me a little bit because i i always kind of feel like i'm quite in tuned with all of that sort of stuff and one of our amazing listeners Karen provided me with some crystals to help which I know isn't everybody's mm. cup of tea but yeah I shout loved out it. to Karen because we love Karen she's amazing um so yeah it always reminds me of that uh what's it called like uh like a sixth sense about things like a, no a memorial in London oh I see two, what you mean yeah yeah so it's on the banks of the Thames and two window cleaners. I think it was back in the 80s. They were cleaning the windows of a skyscraper. And um, unfortunately, the cart that they were in uh, crashed uh, to the ground and they both died. And there's a memorial there and uh, a little kind of garden right in the centre of London. It's really weird. And um, the trees were planted and there's a plaque. And it's just, it was so weird when I went there. I think I mentioned it I once before on this show. Yeah. This. yeah, wow. And it, it was just anything like that. And that wasn't uh, a crime. It wasn't a cr- as a result of a crime, I don't think. Um but but yeah, it's you know when, when there's something like that has happened in a particular place, you can really feel it, can't you? Sometimes I'm one of those I think that can just really get in tune with it and feel the vibe of it. It's ever so weird. See, I'm definitely not that kind of person, but it's always that moment where you go and sit in a bench, for example, and then you realise there's a memorial plaque on it, and you think, God, somebody put this here to remember the name of that person, and I wouldn't have known had I not looked at the plaque. Yeah. It, It's just, yeah, it's a real stark reminder, isn't it, that at any time something's happening to somebody else? Yeah. And we do quite often find this, don't we, with our guest-written episode. People want to take the time and the opportunity to write about a case because there's a reason that they've chosen that specific crime. Most of the time, it's because it took place close to home for them. I think we, in writing scripts week in, week out, We'll look for cases for many other reasons, but we still do get drawn to certain cases from a personal point of view. But our guest written episodes always have that personal feel, don't they? Yeah, I, th- I think they're always extra special episodes because usually it's somebody who is a listener of the show and has probably listened to us for quite a long time and then got in touch and said, I would love to write an episode. Um, so that there's that special connection that we've got. But yeah, y- usually on top of that, it's because there is a case that really resonates with them that they want to bring to the wider attention of our listeners. So yeah, it's something uh, that that definitely they've been involved in or has happened close to home and something that they've kind of kept track of. So today's case is going to take us back to the county of Greater Manchester and we have done quite a few episodes about cases from the area. So um, Chris mentioned my two-part episode, the Manchester Canal Pusher, whether or not we thought he or she was real and then more recently the Stepping Hill case. So Victorino Chow, is that the way to say his name? Is it Chow? Well, I said Chua. Maybe it's not pronounced that way. Um, And Chris himself is a Manchester local, so that's kind of his link there. 
Today's case takes us to Ermston, which is situated in the borough of Trafford and is only a few miles away from Old Trafford, home to football team Manchester United. And I'm sure many of our listeners are going to know that link, but perhaps others, if they're not so much into football, may know of the area because of the Trafford Centre, which is famed for its shopping. Ermston is located five miles from Manchester City Centre, and it was the location of the first ever NHS hospital, which I thought was a really cool fact. I feel like I've heard that once before from somewhere else or on another podcast or something, but I did know that, yeah. Maybe you said it in your episode. I might have done, (laughs) yeah, I might have done, but it's an interesting fact, isn't it? Really cool. And as I love to know about local famous people from around the area, Chris took the time to add some facts in. So he said about how actor Ian McShane, so Lovejoy himself, grew up in nearby Davy Hall, and also Matthew Kelly from Stars of Their Eyes. I'm a huge fan of Ian McShane and Lovejoy. I grew up watching that on a Sunday night, loved that show. I still watch it to this day uh, when it's repeated on Sky. Oh, amazing. And then um, going back to Matthew Kelly and Stars in Their Eyes, Chris said, I'm not sure who you two would appear as on the show, either solo or as a duo. And I straight away, I was thinking, Islands in the Stream, Mark, me and you sing that. Oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah. Or Sunny and Cher, I Got You, Babe. We could do that. That's true. That would be really good. And Chris elaborated on the area. So he said, generally speaking, Ermston was a great place to grow up. It was considered quite an average town, although more recently it has become a trendy and more sought after area with its close links to the city centre. So before we're going to get into the case specifically, we're going to hear from this week's show sponsor. Today's case takes us back to 2004 and in particular Easter Friday, and it centres on a young lady called Lucy Royal. Lucy was a 21-year-old who worked locally for HSS Hire Centre as an office clerk, a job that she enjoyed, and in fact, she'd worked there ever since she left school at the age of 16. She was the youngest of five girls born to parents Roger and Leslie, and on the evening of Easter Friday, they were attending a family gathering. The family celebrations were held at the home that they had shared since Lucy was 12 months old. Now, obviously I wasn't there, but the descriptions from Lucy's family and that Chris has put into his script really evoked for me a scene that reminded me of my family. So they've described the noise and the hustle and bustle of family life, that Lucy loved being surrounded by her sisters and her nieces and nephews. And for me, being one of four sisters and knowing how wonderful family events are, I can just kind of imagine how happy they all were. And this Easter weekend would have been a really great chance to just enjoy one another's company. That makes me all the more sad because I'm I'm guessing something bad is about to happen. And yeah. I can picture them now having that wonderful family time at what is a special time of year for lots and lots of people, Easter. And then, yeah, something terrible happening not too long afterwards. Absolutely. So at the gathering, Lucy was suffering from a bad headache. And although she was feeling unwell, when she received a phone call at about 8.30 that evening from a mystery caller, she decided to head out. And her mum, Leslie, later said about Lucy, I do not think that she wanted to go out, but she rolled her eyes with resignation and left. So Lucy left home wearing black trousers, a dark blue fleece and white and blue Nike trainers. She had her pink Nokia phone and her black backpack and she went to go and meet this mystery caller. And she later rang her sister. So this was about 10 o'clock. So she left about half eight and she did ring her sister a bit later and asked Amy to record Highlander, which was on 11pm, and that was the last time that she was ever heard from. 2004 doesn't feel that long ago, but things like ringing home to ask for a film to be taped kind of 
really dates the case. It makes me always feel a bit weird when we do cases like this. And then there's something that just shows how fast times are changing. Well, I remember when we worked together, I would use the word taped. Uh, I need to tape that or I'm going to tape it. And people would always call me out on it, younger people, and say, record, you need to record it. And obviously that was because they'd not really grown up with VHSs and recording tapes. And that's just what we said. I need to tape it rather than record. So I like still saying it because it's that tiny little link to back in the day. Yeah, and TV was a hell of a lot better back then, so... Oh my God, it was so much better, wasn't it? Yeah, there was less choice, but it was a better quality for sure. So you would tape stuff because you didn't want to miss it, and if you missed it, there was no way of catching up on it. And as a little aside, Chris has said he thinks this was a great film choice. I've not watched Highlander, so Mark, do you agree or disagree with Chris here? Have you watched um, it? I, I thought I thought it was like a Scottish uh, soap or something, Highlander. So uh, it kind of does ring a vague bell that it's a film. I've never seen it, obviously. So no, sorry, Chris. My apologies. Lucy did not return home. The last time she was heard from was that phone call. So just what had happened to her? Well, the following morning, a dog walker, and Chris has put a little note in his script here to say, it's always a dog walker found a body on isolated wasteland known locally as Lover's Lane. So Chris has explained that this Lover's Lane is a passage which acts as a shortcut from Eccles to the Trafford Centre. It runs by the Manchester Ship Canal and it's kind of just like an alley walkway sort of kind of route through. This location was less than a mile from Lucy's family home and that fact reminded me, Mark, of your heartbreaking episode recently with young Ollie and he was just metres from his home and just makes me feel really sad when people are so close to home where they feel safe and then something horrific happens. I I think that's it, isn't it? I think because home represents safety and there's just a real irony when when something absolutely terrible happens and it's really close to home because it is is almost one of those sliding doors moments. They were so close to safety and didn't make it or, you know, it doesn't always work like that. But yeah, it's just that the safety of that home is so close by and then something absolutely horrific is happening to them. And the body was soon confirmed by police to be that of Lucy, who just a few days later on the 27th of April would have been 22 years old. She had sadly been viciously murdered and her injuries were horrific. So her skull had been crushed with a concrete slab and she had been stabbed 18 times in the back. Seasoned officers were sickened by the scene by how vicious this attack had been. Detective Superintendent Peter Minsell said... Lucy's injuries had been the worst he had ever seen and added that the murder was a horrific attack on a defenceless young woman who suffered appalling injuries and he also said Lucy was viciously attacked and suffered horrendous head injuries. Then as she was lying fatally wounded she was repeatedly stabbed in the back. This was a cowardly, brutal, senseless crime. So the post-mortem revealed that the official cause of death was due to the head injuries that Lucy had sustained from that attack with the concrete slab. And at the crime scene, Lucy's Nokia phone and backpack were missing, along with the knife that was used in the attack. And this use of a concrete slab reminded me of an episode of Picture the Scene recently, where someone also took a concrete slab. And you just think like the ferocity of that, because that's a heavy, heavy object. And to be able to wield it in such a way that you then crush someone's skull, there's, there's so much rage and ferocity coming behind that, isn't there? Yeah, I was going to say this is this is quite an unusual way uh, to kill somebody for a murderer to use that, and it is. You're right. I think I I think we can possibly all picture this in our scene down the alleyway 
and Lucy's murderer with a slab holding both a slab with both hands and raining that down on her head that is just I mean of course we we cover lots of brutal murders that is one of one of those that is up there with that real extreme brutality so the police drafted in the tactical aid unit to search the area because it's quite overgrown and they found beer cans which were sent off for examination. They had divers searching nearby ponds, but they found nothing kind of in the immediate aftermath. As the mystery of who killed Lucy deepened, a reconstruction was featured on BBC's Crime Watch, so your favourite show, in May, just over a month after the murder. Lucy's mum, Leslie, went on the show to make a heartbreaking appeal for any information about what had happened to her daughter, and a reconstruction was staged using a lookalike. Leslie said whoever was responsible for snuffing out her young life does not deserve to walk the streets and she also said I beg anyone who knows anything to please come forward now. But sadly there was very little that came off the back of the show, the reconstruction or Leslie's emotional pleas. Just on that note of, of Crime Watch because there's a there's a whole kind of online community that have gone back and watched, I'm, I'm one of those people, gone back and watched all the old episodes of Crime Watch. Lots of us grew up watching it. We were allowed to stay up late to watch it when we probably shouldn't have been because it was a bit traumatic. And lots of people do kind of, there is a lot of chatter about how so many of these, I'm not saying in this case, but so many of the crimes featured on Crime Watch quite often remain remain unsolved to this day. And people kind of say, you know, don't don't understand how how so many don't really yield a response from the public. Some do, but most don't. And the perpetrator remains undiscovered, you know, all these years later. But I think usually that the issue is when when police aren't able to find the perpetrator within a few days, it makes it so much more difficult to find who they are. So the odds are you're either going to catch them within a few days of the murder taking place, or there's probably then like a one in 10 chance of actually ever getting them. So that's why so many um, are unsolved for those that kind of talk about it. This obviously is, is slightly different, but it's interesting that, yeah, you know, it's a month later and it's not yielded any kind of solid leads for the police. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's the whole reason that they've gone on Crime Watch is because they need more of a kind of a platform to to talk about this. Because obviously, if, like you said, if they were going to get the answers straight away, they would have done. So that's probably also why so many cases featured on that are the ones that end up not being solved because they, they needed something extra. But yeah, it's just, it is really sad, isn't it? And you do watch back and you think, God, how did nobody recognise that car or recognise that person? Or put two and two together and it was a show yeah. that was watched a lot. And if a case was featured on Crime Crime Watch, you can bet your bottom dollar that it would have been picked up within the local press, within that community a lot and mm-hmm. covered extensively. So, yeah, I always I mean, maybe it's people covering for other people. So they, they do kind of know who it was or they're in an abusive relationship and they, they don't feel empowered to come forward and report their husband, for example. So. Yeah, it's um, it's just very interesting. And and any book I've ever read where, so Colin Sutton's, for example, you know that the, the detectives always talk about turning to Crime Watch as an absolute last resort. And what they don't often share is that they're turning to Crime Watch because they have nowhere else to go. They have no leads. They they literally are clueless as to who might be responsible. So usually it it means that the investigation is absolutely failing at that point. And the police were really disappointed about this low response to their appeals. They genuinely thought there were people in the community who had not come forward with information. And 
They believe that the key to solving the crime was finding that mystery person that Lucy had arranged to meet. They considered them the prime suspect. And I guess this makes a lot of sense because after all, if you had nothing to hide, you would surely just explain we hung out together, but she headed off afterwards or we hung out together and I went home or whatever. So to not come forward does feel really iffy to me as well. A witness did come forward claiming to see have seen someone who resembled Lucy getting into a red Ford Escort close to where she lived. And also police released information that they were keen to speak to the owner of a green Toyota Yaris, which was parked close to where Lucy's body was found um, that sort of evening of Good Friday, the morning of Easter Saturday. So the owners of the cars were sought, not as suspects, but the police thought that they might hold vital information and also that they might not realise the police wanted to talk to them because they didn't know that what they'd witnessed or seen was actually valid or useful. So the police were making all these different appeals and they also had DNA from the scene, which they knew belonged to their killer, but there was a little bit of an issue there. So we're going to talk about that shortly. Um... But first of all, before, I mean, that's a bit of a teaser, isn't it? But before we kind of find out why there was an issue with that, the police also did some further investigation into Lucy's background and her private life. And at this point, they were able to make some arrests. So three people were arrested in connection with the murder and released on bail pending further investigations. The first man who had been arrested was called Joe Coburn. He was a 21-year-old who had been a former boyfriend of Lucy's and he was questioned for three days. Police also applied for a warrant to question him for a further 36 hours, which was granted. But after this, he was released on bail. At the time of Lucy's murder, Joe had been out of prison for just one day and he had been serving three years for his part in an armed robbery in 2001. Also arrested on suspicion of murder at this time were Gary Joyson and his girlfriend Louise Calvert. Now the DNA evidence pointed to Coburn also pointed to Joyson as potential for the crime because Gary Joyson was Joe Coburn's identical twin brother. I know you love the concept of twins. Twins are a concept. They're, they're a rather disturbing concept. Um, yeah, they freak me out. Um, so the two brothers had different surnames. And at the, the press, quite a lot of the time in the press, it says this was because they had been adopted or this was because they were adopted by different families. And obviously this piqued my interest. I couldn't cope with it. It felt really weird and wrong to me. To se- Separating siblings anyway is awful, but twins and... So I began wondering about how they'd found each other, you know, later in life or something. I had to look further. This is like an episode of Sister, Sister, the first ever episode (laughs) where they're in the mall. They were separated at birth and then they, yeah, they find each other in a shop. Great show. Yeah. Amazing show. Um, As we said, TV used to be better, so much better back in the day. So this, obviously, it has no real bearing on the case, but Basically, the twins were adopted, yes, but they only had different surnames because one of them chose to take their adoptive parent's surname and the other didn't change his. So so often the media were just reporting this case and saying they had different surnames because they were adopted and it, it really, that, was, that wasn't the case. They had different surnames because one of them chose to take the adoptive family's name, the other didn't. So they were adopted into the same family? They were adopted into the same family. Yeah. I mean, they're not very nice people, so I don't really know how much I should be happy about that, but it it felt better to me that they had been adopted into the same family. So anyway, the police had DNA evidence, which pointed to one or both of the men. And on Seeing Red, we have had a few discussions about folie deux, but was this the madness of twins or was just one of the brothers responsible? The police needed to determine which of the brothers had murdered Lucy. 
and as both twins had the same genetic makeup, it did prove at least that one of them had been at the scene of the crime, but they needed more. And police investigators then turned to the beer cans that were found at the crime scene, and they found that the fingerprints belonging to both brothers were present at the time of the murder. And I just find it so fascinating, even though genetically the brothers are the same and they share the same DNA, that their fingerprints would still be different. I was going to say, and I know that makes me sound really naive, but I couldn't remember whether twins shared the same fingerprints or not because they share basically everything else if they're it's identical twins. It's weird that they twins. don't share the same yeah, fingerprints. Yeah, why wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah, but it's kind of a good thing because it does obviously help in situations like this to determine, well, it's not helping because they were both at the scene, but quite often it might be the deciding factor in actually which twin was responsible for something. And so, yeah, the police knew both brothers had been there, but they still needed to determine what had led to Lucy's savage murder and who of their three suspects had been involved and to what extent. So the three people arrested, Joe Coburn, Gary Joyson and Louise Calvert, refused initially to talk to the police. None of them went into full detail about what had happened that night and all three were expected to stand trial. However, Joe Coburn, at a court hearing decided to plead guilty. Gary Joyson and Louise Calvert pleaded guilty to the lesser charges of conspiracy to assault, occasioning actual bodily harm and false imprisonment. So the charge of murder was dropped against them. And from Coburn's confession, the truth was finally out. But just what had happened that night? The events of the night of Lucy's murder stemmed from events that had taken place three years earlier. Joe Coburn called Lucy that night fresh out of prison and hell-bent on revenge. And why? Well, Lucy had refused to be his alibi for the court case against him for the armed robbery charges, and some reports even state that she gave evidence against him. High and drunk on a cocktail of drugs and alcohol that he had been consuming all day, he lured Lucy to this secluded spot with the intention of having sex with Lucy, this was Lover's Lane after all, and then he planned to get his revenge by beating her up. So this guy was really all over the shop. Whilst he was in prison, he would often write to Lucy. Sometimes these letters would include expressions of affection, sometimes writing threats of violence. So he clearly never got past what he saw as her betrayal, and he has also been described as sexually obsessed with Lucy. I was, I was going to say, I feel like there's, there's more of a motivation behind this attack and this murder. It's not just revenge. I find that weird, though. There is an element of revenge, isn't there, in seeking revenge for him going to prison. And I just find that kind of weird that I wonder if, yeah, for the three years that he was inside, he must have absolutely fixated on that and fantasised about the day that he was going to get out and seek revenge. And my God, he did not waste any fucking time, did he? He'd been out of prison one day. One day, that was obviously the one thing that was keeping him going throughout prison. Yeah, in court they said that the three years in prison thinking about this had led to his obsession with satisfying his lust and then punishing Lucy. So he had, like you said, just spent three years in prison fixating on when I get out, I'm going to have sex with her and I'm going to punish her. When Lucy did turn down his advances, the mix of anger at being rejected, the cocktail of drugs and alcohol and just generally being him meant that Coburn absolutely lost his shit. So as Chris described earlier on, Lover's Lane is this long passage that cuts between the Trafford Centre and Eccles and seeing how enraged Coburn was, Lucy tried to flee 
um, kind of going to a different entrance, but the group had made plans. So Gary Joyson and Louise Calvert had entered at different points and they were blocking Lucy's escape from Coburn. Can you imagine like her absolute panic and her fear? Oh, yeah, I can feel it and I can picture it all in my head. And you're right, the word is panic because she's thinking, oh my God, I'm in this horrific situation. I know what's about to happen. I need to run, literally run for my life. And then you see people that you probably recognise that you know then are in on it and they are going to prevent you from going anywhere. And all of a sudden it's it's three people against one. When it's one-on-one, there's a chance that you might get away with your life. But when she had that moment of realisation that actually that there's three of them now, I'm fucked. That's, that must have been what she was thinking. It's just heartbreaking to picture that and to think of that. Lucy just couldn't escape. She was absolutely trapped and there was no way for her to get away from Coburn. He began punching her and raining down blows on her. Shortly afterwards, he then grabbed that concrete slab smashed her in the head and then after that when she was on the floor he took his knife and just began stabbing at her absolutely ferociously. Both Joyson and Calvert later claimed that they didn't know that Coburn intended to kill Lucy and Calvert apparently ran when the first punch hit Lucy but I just don't understand why they thought that they had to be there if not to help Coburn in his quest for violence like maybe not to kill but they were there you know they were privy to the phone call where he asked Lucy to come and meet him at least they knew they were there to be a lookout. And what did they think they were being a lookout for? They must have known he was going to attack her. Honestly, so the first punches rain down on, on Lucy and then they think, oh, fuck, I'm, I'm legging it. I'm going to get out of here. Did they really not think that, that, he, that he was at least going to attack her physically? That's just utterly ridiculous. I could see Isn't them maybe just? thinking, I could see them running, you know, if things escalated beyond what they thought might have, what you know, what might have, been happening like just an assault and then it escalates and a knife is pulled yeah I could understand that but the first punch being pulled and then I'm running away absolute bullshit it is isn't it and I, I mean Joe Coburn probably didn't go into this expecting to kill her either I don't feel like it was I mean he did take a knife so therefore there is something there but even he probably didn't expect that. He he genuinely thought she was going to have sex with him fully happily and then he was going to beat her up. Like, he obviously was messed up as well. But yeah, no, the first punch and then I realised, well, why are you blocking the exit then, love? Yeah. This was always mm. at the very minimum, at the very least, this was always going to be an assault on her. Um, I, yeah, I, I agree. Exactly. I don't think I don't think it was meant to end in, in her death i think it just it's you know seeing red literally isn't it Mm -hmm. enraged in that moment and then taking it way too far apparently according to testimony there was no love lost between lucy and louise um it was also revealed that lucy and calvert had had sexual relationships each with both brothers over the years so i mean i know louise calvert saying as soon as i saw the first punch i ran Well, really, what was she actually thinking in the lead up to the attack? Maybe there was some sort of animosity because they'd both been with both brothers or something. And that was her now boyfriend was um, Gary Joyson. So maybe there was something there. I don't know for definite, but the, the papers have all kind of mentioned that element to it as well. So as they had all pleaded guilty to the relevant charges, with Coburn pleading guilty to murder and Joyce and Calvert each pleading guilty to the lesser charges of conspiracy to assault, occasioning actual bodily harm and false imprisonment, the trial was reasonably quick and sentencing soon took place. 
At sentencing, Joe Coburn was jailed for life for the murder of Lucy with a minimum term of 14 years. His twin brother, Gary Joyson, was sentenced to six years. And Gary Joyson's girlfriend, Louise Calvert, who by this time had given birth to Joyson's baby whilst on remand, was sentenced to four years. The judge said of Joe Coburn, he had with him a knife. When she refused to have intercourse, he lost his self-control and killed her. And the judge said that the aggravating features, including an element of planning, um, kind of that there was not a sense of intention to kill, but intention to cause harm. But he had also taken that knife with him. So the judge was quite scathing about that as well. But but I actually think that's why the minimum term is only 14 years, because that's quite low for murder. I think it's because the judge has realised and accepted, which I think are, we're the same, that there wasn't necessarily premeditation to kill Lucy. That's something that happened uh, through that, you know, being affected by drink and drugs and just that rage and that anger. But I don't think that was necessarily the plan. So I think that I can kind of get why the sentencing was as it was. Yeah, exactly. And fair enough, her parents, so Lucy's parents did say that they were unhappy with the verdict. And they issued a statement later referring to what they described as the so-called justice system. And they said that the conviction agreed in court, albeit on lesser charges, proves their involvement in such an evil deed. Lucy was brutally taken from us in a malicious, callous and evil way, leaving a gap in our lives never to be filled. She was a beautiful average girl who was a kind-hearted and generous person and she saw the good in everyone regardless of their background. Um, so, But I think it's always valid. I think the family will never feel that there's justice been done, really, no matter what the sentence, because they've had that horrific loss. The, the two others that were involved and, and obviously weren't convicted of murder but were kind of you know involved in this I actually think my issue would probably lie with the charges brought against them because are they equally as culpable for this potentially that's what we saw last week with Ollie Stevens murder we saw boy A and boy B both tried for murder and found guilty of that even though I think it was boy A possibly that that inflicted the the kind of uh, the stab wounds on Ollie, Boy B didn't do that at all. I might have got those the wrong way around, but uh, but they were both culpable. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you know, I think there's an argument that the other two uh, are equally as culpable for for murder. But then I suppose that's that's up to the court and the prosecution of what did they want to charge them with. Then I suppose is the they did plead guilty to those charges. So it's a it's a really tricky one, isn't it? Yeah, and. The prosecution had previously told the court this was a tale of sex, deception, resentment and retribution, which I think just sums it up perfectly in those five words, doesn't it? Yeah. So afterwards, Joe Coburn did appeal the 14 years minimum of his life sentence. So the appeal judge agreed that even with mitigating factors such as his guilty plea, 14 years was still valid as a sentence. And the appeal judge referred to the fact that he had just gotten out of prison at the time, saying on record, more important than that is the fact that this offence of murder was committed within 24 hours or thereabouts of this appellant's release on licence from his sentence. However, the appeal did result in the judge agreeing that the 266 days that Coburn had spent on remand should be taken into account and deducted from his minimum term. So he got something out of the appeal, but actually, no, they said, whilst there were mitigating factors and yes, she pleaded guilty, you also did this within 24 hours of being released from prison. Yeah, that that's the disturbing element that I don't know if he had to go before the parole board because you don't always have to 
uh, to be released. Um, but if he did, then I think they have questions to answer. However, some people are so clever and manipulative that they can spin a yarn and say all the right things with conviction, get released, and their intention was to commit a murder straight away. The parole board is not their fault. Yeah, and I feel like he'd done his three years. He was sentenced to three years and he'd done them, so... So no, um, it wasn't up to anyone would to have release thought, him. Yeah. yeah, they would have thought, well, he's he's done his time and he's out. And that's just really yeah. scary, isn't it? So Chris finished his script by saying that although with such an, a serious and a horrific crime, there can never be a happy ending, he and I, Bethan, always think that it's best to remember the victim and what a fun, loving, caring family person she was. So he took some time to look at Lucy's memory and the way that she was remembered. Lucy's mum Leslie said Lucy was a very generous, loving and trusting person and also had a mischievous side to her. She was happy spending most of her time at home, especially since all her sisters and nieces and nephews were always around. At Lucy's funeral at St Mary's in Davy Home, friends, family and work colleagues gathered to pay tributes to her and their last respects. As the family left the church, the song The Banana Boat Song from the film Beetlejuice was played. This was one of Lucy's favourite films. And here, I will say, I've watched that numerous times and I do love that film. Haven't seen Highlander, but I like Beetlejuice. And Lucy's mum said, I know the Banana Boat Song may seem like an unusual choice, but not only is it the music from one of Lucy's favourite film scenes, it also sums her up. The song says, I want to go home, and that was Lucy, a real home bird who was never happier than when she was with her family. It's also a little bit mischievous, which is how exactly how Lucy was. Today's service is about remembering Lucy and celebrating her life, and I know she would want us to think of her with a smile. By playing this song, hopefully everyone will leave with happy memories of her. So there we go, guys. Yeah, what a tribute to her. So, yeah, huge thank you to Chris from Manchester, our listener who wrote this case up for us and his script for us to use and for getting in touch with us. Yeah, thank you so much, Chris. Uh, amazing job. So we'll be back back with normal timings next week. Um, so thank you for joining us this week and we'll see you then. Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.